1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. These are God's words. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires good work. The bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen, God's word. Uh, so in the desire, the effort to reform the church in Ephesus, uh, if backsliding Ephesus is going to be recovered, if the backsliding is going to be uh, reversed, uh, Timothy is to put the, uh, the church back into order, and we've seen some of the different roles that need to be recovered, and uh, the prayer meeting itself being a place where those roles come together and uh, something that is necessary to a great engine of in the providence of God, uh, the reformation or revival of a church. Uh, but as we're coming close now to verses 8 through 13, uh, which is really the center of our thought in 1 Timothy on the diaconate, uh, containing as it does the qualifications uh, of the diaconate, although there's portions in chapter 5 and chapter 6 in which we're going to uh, see more of the work uh, of the diaconate. Uh, he first handles the qualifications of uh, the elder, or as he, uh, uh, or as he uses one of the elders' other titles, the bishop or the overseer or the ruler. Uh, and one of the reasons that this is done is because uh, some of what is given then in the qualifications of a deacon and the character qualifications of a deacon, who is to oversee the service ministry of the church is shorthand referring back to the more extended description of the elder's character in, uh, in verses 1 through 7, specifically in verses 2 and 3. Uh, there are some things in each description that are particular to their work, uh, but he does deal with the elder at length first, and then he picks a couple of the things that he has dealt with uh, with respect to the elder, uh, and he puts them in his description of the qualifications of the deacon. Now, one of the important things that uh, we have to notice right away in verse 1 uh, is the way that he introduces this. He introduces it with uh, uh, a preamble or uh, an introduction that tells us that this is an important point of doctrine, that this isn't just good advice, that this isn't just the best way uh, of making sure the church runs well, 
But this is important theology. This is an important truth. And so he says, this is a faithful saying. It's one of the faithful saying introductions of important points of doctrine. Uh, now, if God had just given us, without that sort of an introduction, if the Spirit had just given us uh, the advice on how to operate a home or advice on how to organize a church, uh, of course we should set aside everything that, that we had thought uh, and go with God's advice instead. Uh, but he does elevate the significance then of what he's saying here because uh, one of the problems that they had in Ephesus is that as a result of having a disorganized church, uh, they had people like Alexander uh, who had arisen and made themselves teachers in the church. And, uh, and there was uh, false doctrine being taught and doctrine that didn't accord uh, with godliness. Uh, and it turns out that one of the reasons why false doctrine comes from organizing the church with teachers other than the ones whom Christ is called to be the teachers is because that itself, uh, having the teachers that Christ has called, having the teachers that Christ has saved, having the teachers uh, that Christ uh, has graced and grown and matured, uh, is itself an important doctrine. So this is part of that sound theology which Timothy is supposed to be insisting on uh, as he labors to see the backsliding in Ephesus reversed. Now, today, there is much diversity in the organization or authority structure of congregations uh, in the professing church, in the visible church. There's much diversity in who does teaching uh, in the visible church. And this is not a good thing. Uh, when the Lord introduces something with this is a faithful saying, when he says this is an important point of doctrine, we hope that we would not have diversity in the churches, but that all of the churches would say, oh, the Bible says this is theologically important that the church be organized this way. Now, one of the things that uh, some people might think, and I hope that you will not be among them, certainly not by the time we're, uh, we're done considering the passage, uh, is that because there's so much uh, diversity that scripture maybe isn't clear uh, and so that this is a, a matter of indifference, a, a, a small point that shouldn't be uh, uh, strongly emphasized. Uh, but of course, the apostle here strongly emphasizes this is a faithful saying. Now, what, uh, what immediately follows the faithful saying is a job description. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, we have seen, particularly in the apostles' description of their own spiritual oversight in Acts chapter 6, and Paul's uh, farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, uh, some more thorough uh, uh detailed descriptions of the things that uh, elders are to do. But here is a, a summary job description. If, anyone, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Uh, in other words, he is called to do, uh, to do that which is for the good of the flock. It's good. And he is called to exert himself in laboring. It's 
work. Uh, and so a man who is going to be diligent in exerting himself for labor, for, uh, in laboring and one who is going to do this laboring out of a desire for and aiming at the good of the flock will especially have a particular character, goodness and diligence uh, will mark this man. This is why the qualifications that we see in verses 2 through 7 are primarily character qualifications and not ability qualifications. We're tempted in the church uh, to seek after those uh, who seem to be really sharp or really skilled, uh, effective at getting people to do things. Uh, there are um, there are many sorts of ability ways we could go about uh, discovering who is qualified. Uh, but the character qualifications that we see here are primarily char character qualifications, uh, and that flows directly out of the nature of the work. He desires a good work. Now, this doesn't just belong to the work of an elder. You know, an obedient and diligent uh, uh, and honoring child, uh, the, the one whom God has put in the role of a child has been put in the role of a good work. You should be seeking to honor God and do good to others. Uh, and so there's that aiming at what is good and you should labor at it. You should think about how to do it and you should be diligent and prompt and, uh, and do it as unto the Lord. It's a work. Uh, and so it makes sense uh, that that which applies, of course, not, uh, not only to you children, but to everyone. In every role that we have, we should be seeking to do a good work. We just saw uh, in the, uh, what the ladies especially hope to bring uh, to the prayer meeting in 1 Timothy 2, that their hearts would be full of godliness and their hands would be full of good works. Uh, and so it's very important that the one uh, who, whom the Lord has called to serve in this role of authority over spiritual things would himself see that service as a good work. It is a position then of beneficial good activity work. The qualified man will keep his household in check then in verse 4, uh, not just have a household that is kept in check, uh, but he will keep his household in check, particularly by being a man of certain qualities that we see in verse 2 and avoiding certain defects that we see in verse 3. He will demonstrate the qualities uh, in his home, verses 4 and 5, in the church, verse 6, and in the community Verse 7. Uh, so we have in verse 2 and 3, then, uh, the positive qualities uh, that we can, uh, by which we can identify the mature man whom the Lord has not only uh, saved, but now matured and graced, grown in grace, graced uh, for this work. And then we'll see in verse 3 those negative things that the man must not be. Uh, the first is. Uh, that a bishop then must be blameless, above reproach. Nothing in his manner or conduct gives accusers an ungodliness to latch on to. Now, certainly he may be accused of being 
ungodly. He may be unfairly slandered. Uh, and it behooves the church to, to clear anyone in the church who is unfairly slandered. But he himself has not uh, conducted himself in any way uh, that gives them an ungodliness to latch onto. It is possible for a man to have a good reputation and it not be particularly well deserved. Uh, this is not the blameless man. Uh, this is the Teflon man uh, whose ungodliness has not somehow uh, stuck to him. Those who are closer to such a man will have legitimate concerns, but a qualified man maintains his integrity. Uh, he is uh, blameless, uh, whether in the home or in the church or in the community. He is in the second place, uh, literally a one-woman man. Uh, it bears repeating because this is going to be um, repeated uh, in verse 12 with reference uh, to the deacon, uh, that this requires him to be a man. Uh, you could take the adjective out and see what the qualification is. Uh, the, the bishop or the overseer is a man. Uh, and then you add the adjective in, and he's a one-wife man or a one-woman man, uh, particularly with respect to, uh, uh, with respect to his own wife, he is committed to monogamous marriage. He is uh, committed to living in a way with his wife uh, that, uh, that honors God in the way that marriage is designed to be. Uh, and he cares about marriage itself, uh, that all husbands would be uh, one-woman men, uh, that all wives would be one-man women. Uh, this means, and... It's not an issue in our own denomination, but a sister denomination has gone round and round at several uh, general assemblies in a row, uh, that it really is one of the particular qualifications of a man who will be ordained to the office of elder, or especially called uh, as a preacher of the gospel, that he holds uh, clearly, diligently, joyously, firmly uh, to marriage as God has defined it. Uh, and this not only for himself, but for all. Anyone who is soft or unclear on this issue, anyone who is unclear on uh, whether you may identify yourself according to a perversion that doesn't see marriage as uh, one woman and one man, uh, simply is not fit uh, according, well, according to biblical morality generally, but God gives an explicit uh, qualification here. Uh, that excludes uh, such men. David? Daniel, you don't have an answer to this, but I'm going to ask. But my question is, in the Old Testament, you had men that were not, not, not polygamous, and it didn't seem to keep them from certain offices, whereas if you had a person in our congregation that was a polygamist, it would definitely keep them from certain offices. Well, uh, in the Old Testament, God was picking the men by divine inspiration, uh, and that's how they were being uh, anointed to their office. Uh, it is very much different when the church 
uh, is looking. God in his purposes uh, will use a wicked man to show the folly of his wickedness. Uh, in every situation where you had multiple wives, uh, it was foolish. Uh, and part of the narrative of the text, part of the theological point of the text, becomes how powerful and merciful God is that he can even use men who are in such folly and in such sin to bring about the bringing of his son uh, into the world. Uh, polygamy begins in the line of Cain, uh, and you can see every time uh, that there is polygamy in the Bible, even if it is from among the sons of God and the line of Abel, that they are in that particular of their life living according to the line of Cain, living according to the devil. Uh, and uh, God uses sinners. But this idea of God uses sinners cannot become our excuse for selecting people who are marked by a sin uh, when God has specifically given us qualifications for whom we are to call. Uh, and that's very important, not just in the area of... Um, sexual immorality, but in anything in which a man does not meet the first qualification uh, of a godliness that could not be, uh, of an having a godliness, or rather having no ungodliness that could be latched onto, uh, whether by his family who sees him worse than he is, uh, in front of anybody else, they see his worst. And, um, you know, we may, uh, we may think about this in, in our own um in our own elder and deacon examination process, officer examination processes. Uh, but it's not a bad idea for the session to sit down with the family uh, and to try and get a portrait of what dad is like at home. And we'll get to that. Um, uh, we'll get to that, especially uh, in verse uh, four and five. Um, yes. I would assume that it's up to and including one, one wife, uh, limited to one wife, as opposed to many. Um, although it is more difficult uh, to uh, identify and affirm the character, especially when you get to verse four and five, if the man is not married, if the man does not have children, if the children are not grown to some extent so that it can be seen, uh, not just that they are kept in submission. I mean, this was written to a culture in which all children were kept in submission. Yeah, it would just blow their minds to visit uh, an American Walmart and see the way, the way uh, children, uh, children act now. Uh, but the, the way that submission is obtained so you get a child to an age in which they've at least been trained to comply. But is that complying out of reverence? Is there that um, trusting God that he picked my dad for me and he's using my dad? And so there's a joyous, reverent submission. Um, anyway, we're... Um, Originally... Um, yeah, originally, this is uh, an hour and a half's worth, and we're trying to do it in half an hour. I'm not sure we're going to 
get there. But that's uh, especially when we get to, to verses 4 and 5. Um, but yes, thank you for the question. Uh, so he's a one-woman man. He is faithful. Uh, he honors especially his own marriage, but marriage generally. He's committed to the purity of the marriage bed. Uh, this is something that Hebrews 13 picks up, uh, and it's not unrelated then in that chapter to verse 7 and verse 17, uh, where the uh, reverencing the marriage bed and considering it pure and to be kept pure and undefiled uh, is, uh, is a mark of those who have led you and spoken the word to you uh, as verse 7 uh, and verse 17 of Hebrews 13 describe. Um, in the third place, he's temperate. Uh, in, in other words, he is a man who does not indulge his senses uh, in, in his tastes and habits. He, he is not uh, living for the pleasures of the body. Uh, he can enjoy what God has, what God has made, uh, but the primary joy for which he lives, the primary satisfaction that he finds is that deeper, lasting, steady joy of the Lord. Uh, as such, this word tempered also means serious, which is not the same as somber. Someone can be deeply joyful, and an elder should be deeply joyful. It's the second in the list of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, but he is not uh, a light, uh, silly, superficial man. He's an earnest man. He's a, he, he is a, um, he does life, oh, sorry, I hate such phrases, um, uh, seriously. He's steady. Uh, it's also something, uh, an aspect of the idea of being tempered. He's steady. He's not always, uh, not always coming up with something new. He's not, uh, he's not, um, yeah, super up and down. Uh, he's temperate. Very, uh, very closely related to the next word, sober-minded. Uh, the word means literally that his uh, he is controlled by wisdom. Uh, this is a man who learns what God's word says, but he is not uh, always learning and never coming to the truth. He is always learning and growing in living by the truth. Uh, so it's the, it's the truth that he learns, and he puts it into application. Uh, he's controlled by wisdom, which means he's not a pragmatist who changes with the situations. But since he's theologically principled, his approach, uh, his approach is formed by scripture, not by situation. He's not an impulsive man who, who changes his approach uh, in life or in what he does according to his feelings or inclinations. He, he uh, lives by theological principle. And this, of course, uh, is something that all of us want to do. We always want to be learning what God's word says and living according to that uh, because uh, God already, and this is going back to temperate, is our joy, is our peace, uh, is our satisfaction, uh, and that affects not just the things that we enjoy in life and, uh, and how we enjoy them, uh, but it means that we want to be controlled uh, by the Word of God. Uh, ladies uh, especially, 
Uh, if you find that your emotions have their way with you, uh, the, the way out of that is to be controlled by wisdom, to be controlled by the fear of the Lord. A uh, husband who loves his wife uh, and doesn't want her to be uh, living the life of massive emotional swings, he will want to be consistent, for instance, uh, in family worship, or even if, uh, if it's a season in which he's able to maintain it, uh, married uh, worship, uh, the husband and the wife together, so that they're constantly coming back together to the word of God, constantly coming back together to God who is their salvation, God who is their refuge, God who is, uh, God who is their rock. Uh, and it's not like the man doesn't need it either. But if he knows that that's, uh, and different women are different, but if, it, if he has a wife of a particular constitution um, with, those, uh, with those swings, uh, let him uh, seek all the more for himself to be sober-minded and let him attend upon the means by which living a wisdom-controlled, scripture-controlled, uh, particular view of God-controlled uh, life happens. He is of good behavior. Um, the inner goodness of the man is actually worked out in the things that he does. He's hospitable. Uh, literally, he's a friend of strangers, the sort of person who helps as he is able in a way that exposes a desire to be a help and refreshment to others. Okay. We are all called to be hospitable, uh, but someone who is going to put himself at expense for the good and refreshment of others, uh, that is uh, an essential for an elder. Being an elder is costly in your time. Being an elder is costly in your labor, or it should be. If it's not, we're doing it wrongly. Uh, being an elder is costly in the taxing of your soul. When the Apostle Paul lists his sufferings in this world, the concern for the churches, uh, and his grief over those uh, who are made to stumble uh, is above being beaten with rods and whipped with scourges and shipwrecked uh, and a night and a day at sea. Uh, and so there, is, uh, there ought to be in, this character, in the character of this man that he is a friend even of the stranger he is willing to lay himself out, to take on expense uh, that someone else uh, might be helped and refreshed. And in the last place, uh, able to teach. Uh, this is someone who has been taught. Uh, he doesn't just know the truth, uh, but he has mastered it in its connections and proportions. Uh, so he's, he's not just able to tell you what is true, uh, but he's able to put it in its right place in the doctrine of the Bible as a whole, uh, which means, among other things, he's always going to be full of who Jesus is, who the triune God is, uh, and uh, what God has done and how this is worked out in our lives. It's always going to come back uh, to union with Christ. Uh, but he shouldn't just know a bunch of true things. Uh, he should have the uh, uh, the mastery of the whole. Uh, now, the ruling of the elder being done, uh, especially 
uh, from the Word of God, uh, the, this capacity varies. Uh, but to whatever extent he has it, um, it should at least be there to some extent. You remember, or maybe you don't remember, but because we aren't in chapter 5 yet, uh, but there are especially those elders who rule well. Teaching is the great part of shepherding. Uh, teaching is uh, the, the great part of the good work that is at the function of this office. Now, these things, and we've mentioned uh, this already in, in a couple of them, blameless, um, uh, committed to the purity of uh, monogamous, one man, one woman marriage, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable. Uh, all of these things uh, are things that every Christian uh, should be seeking to grow in. Every man should be seeking uh, to grow in these things. Um, the longer a man is a Christian, the more his own picture should be filling out the sketch uh, that we have in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Uh, and uh, a man who is not at least growing in those things, he may not be uh, of a maturity yet uh, or obvious um, uh, uh, state of growth uh, yet that others would recognize him as an elder. But a man who is not growing in them at all has reason to tremble uh, at the condition of his soul because the elder is going to be someone who, like the Apostle says, now imitate me in these things as I imitate Christ. Uh, and so uh, the believer wants to be imitating these things as well. Um, we're probably going to, we'll try and do the uh, next two-thirds next week, uh, but it's probably going to end up being three weeks on the elder and then three weeks uh, on the deacon, uh, just for your planning purposes. Maybe we'll be able to launch uh, straight in and finish the elder and do the deacon in one week. We don't know what the Lord will help us to do. Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but that you have given us as an important point of theology what the eldership is like and uh, what the qualifications for an elder are. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, be growing all of us in these uh, wonderful character traits that are produced by the life of Christ and those who belong to him by faith. Help us now as we come to you through Jesus and the worship. We praise you. He is our ascension, our tribute, and our peace. We pray that you would help us uh, by your spirit, that you would stir up faith in Jesus Christ, and that you would be glorified in the worship of your people. Uh, and so we pray that you would oversee even the time between now and when we start, that we would use it and employ it well as those who are coming, uh, about to come now to the public worship of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.